0: The Jewish views on the ever-worsening anti-semitism problem for the Labour Party, with two politicians suspended, what happens next to the opposition? Documenting the life of possibly one of the greatest unsung heroes of World War II. And Akiva School hosting an event that's just for laughs.
1: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish News this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. In a turbulent week for Labour, Ken Livingstone was suspended from the party over comments he made defending an MP at the centre of an anti-Semitism row. The former London mayor will be investigated for bringing the party into disrepute. Mr Livingstone appeared on BBC Radio London to defend the Bradford West MP Naz Shah, who'd already been suspended by Labour, for comments made on social media about relocating Israel into the United States and saying that everything Hitler did in Germany was legal. Miss Shah has since acknowledged her comments were deeply offensive to Jewish people and apologised. In the House of Commons, an amendment to the Immigration Bill to bring 3,000 child refugees to the UK has been defeated – it had been put forward by the Jewish peer, Lord Dubbs, who is a kinder transport survivor. He arrived in Britain from Prague in 1938. Lord Dubson now apparently intends to ask the government to talk to local authorities about resettling a specified number of child refugees. A Jewish mother in North London has asked the community to pray for her 20-year-old daughter, who's on a life support machine after suffering a bleed to the brain. Lauren Rosenberg's friends and family have set up an online donations page asking people to do a mitzvah and give money to the ambulance charity Hatzola. Thousands of pounds have been raised already. Her daughter Leora has been in the Royal London Hospital for a week, with the family saying they're hoping for a miracle. Tributes have been paid to the British-born rabbi Daniel Bella, who has died in Israel at the age of 53. Rabbi Bella, who was a father of six, moved to Ranana in 1997. In 2013, he was one of those suggested as a replacement for Lord Sachs as chief rabbi. He's been described as a real community rabbi with a genuine love of people who was very much a bridge between religious and secular Jews in Israel. And finally, two former JFS students have been celebrating after Prince George was pictured with President Obama wearing a robe from their children's clothing company, which they started six years ago. Daniel Price and Johnny Sitton, who are both 28, have now sold out of the £27 dressing gown, but another batch is on the way. That's the news, now the sport, with Andrew Sherwood.
2: Thanks Viv. Sunday morning could see North London Raiders A crowned Premier Division champions. A win against Harmon will see them retain their title and complete a League and Cup double, ahead of their Peter Morrison final next weekend, which could see them complete a first ever treble. Elsewhere, Woodford Wanderers could secure the Division 1 title, providing they win at Brixton and FC Team B fail to beat Oakwood B. And finally, Ilana Kratish will become the first Israeli woman to compete in the wrestling tournament at an Olympic Games after she won a world qualifying tournament in Mongolia. The 25 year old became the 30th Israeli to book her spot in Rio for this summer's tournament. Remember, you can
0: catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. Now, Rich, I was rather hoping that we would be able to go at least one week without the words anti-Semitism and Labour Party springing up within the same sentence. However, it would appear as if this week not only have those words cropped up again, but they are worse than ever. Would you care to tell us what's on the front page for this week? Yeah,
3: the story has really come to a head this week. Naz Shah, the Bradford uh, MP for Labour, has been suspended for a Facebook posting she made two years ago calling for the relocation and transportation of Jews as a solution to the Middle East problem. It was a skeleton in the closet that was dug up. Uh, The story got its own momentum. It, It went faster and faster to the point where she actually wrote an apology letter in the Jewish News website this week. That didn't save her. A couple of hours later, she actually stood up in the uh, House of Commons and made another very, very heartfelt apology. That didn't save her. Finally, Jeremy Corbyn, who for hours and hours had been very, very loyal, standing steadfastly by her, decided he had no further choice and he suspended her
0: and the whip has been withdrawn. So this obviously isn't the end of this story because this has led on to other members of the Labour Party making other comments and and doing other things. I think that just to sort of focus on Naz ever so slightly, although she has apologised, I think it was the last count up to about three times that she's officially apologised. Is is that right? Yes. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, there's been about three apologies. There's been been about three apologies from her. Like you say, the axe has fallen. She has been suspended. However, we
4: should like to point out that
0: technically this was done before she became an MP. Does that differ anyone's opinion?
4: Well, it shows that uh, she's changed her view, that she's matured as a politician. But at the same time, she even said that it's no excuse. The fact that she wasn't an MP before and her political immaturity is no excuse for what she said. And she apologised and she she basically threw herself in front of the bus and said, do as you need to do. I've apologised. I hope that that's enough. And it proves that it wasn't enough in the end. Because, of course, the other angle to all of this, and
0: I am not necessarily defending the comments made by Nasha or posted by her, I should say, because I believe I'm right in thinking that she just posted an image as opposed to she actually wrote the comments. I could be mistaken from that. However, the other point that is that is raised from this is that people could argue that this starts to curb the concept of free speech if that is what she believes is an answer. Is she just maybe expressing an opinion that although we find abhorrent as members of the Jewish community, maybe she just sort of said them thinking that that was a genuine solution rather than actually meaning anything? ill by them. I'm just putting it out there. I don't know.
3: Number of points there. Number one, she didn't just absentmindedly put up a post and forget about it. She interacted with this post. So it it wasn't just simply off the top of her head. This is something that she firmly believed and engaged in at a time when temperatures and I think emotions were high during the last Gaza war in 2014. This was just a year before she became an MP. But I imagine she was probably on the radar of the Labour Party at that time. So for someone... With ambitions in Westminster to be be doing something, I I think it calls into question her temperament and her her character. She has been very, very contrite since and I hope she she isn't expelled. I hope she retains the whip at a certain point in the future, learns her lessons and and she can be someone who can act positively for Muslim-Jewish relations in this country. She's done a lot of good work in the local synagogue in Bradford. She uh, was at Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner's Mok last week. So she does engage with the Jewish community and I hope that she can come back on side
0: here and hopefully right a few of these wrongs okay well like we said it's not just that particular Labour MP in the form of Naz Shah who's in the news this week there is but another one I believe our former mayor of London Ken Livingstone has been passing comments and what has he been saying
4: well Ken Livingstone made two very controversial comments on Thursday firstly he defended Naz Shah saying that she overstepped the mark, but they weren't anti-Semitic comments. It wasn't anti-Semitic to say that Israel should be transported to America. And then he made a comment which has led to about 20 Labour MPs calling for his expulsion. And this comment was that Hitler was a Zionist. Now, you might have to just compose yourself there, that a man responsible for murdering six million people is actually a Zionist. Ken then went on to, well,
0: in particular, six million Jews. Yeah. Of course, a Zionist. It's it's not really something you'd think would be in the same sentence. But what what was his motive for saying this? Is, is he is there any background to why he said
4: that? It's it's difficult to know really because it kind of it came out of the blue. It started off being a comment about Naz Shah, and then it went on to people's motivations for attacking the Labour Party. At the moment, he was essentially saying. The reason so many people are accusing the Labour Party of anti Semitism is because of a political motivation about Israel, and that led on to his comments about Hitler.
3: If this story couldn't get any bigger, it got bigger 24 hours after the Nashar thing. I mean, this is Ken Livingstone, a man whose Labour career has been re energised by Jeremy Corbyn. The two of them are kindred spirits, if you like. So, this is really, really taking a, a step back into the fast lane. For him to be saying these things, for him to be saying the man who killed six million Jews was a Zionist, it. It's almost, I think it's worse than 10 years ago when he called a Jewish journalist uh, worse than a Nazi concentration camp guard. He doesn't seem to care. And I think he's emboldened under the new regime of of Jeremy Corbyn. The next few days, I think, are going to be even more interesting still. Things are really coming to a head. There were days and weeks when it was just rank and file members and then councillors that were tweeting this stuff. People that didn't really carry that much influence. Now it's it's big shots. So we'll see in the coming days where this thing goes. We certainly
0: will. And it just, it strikes me as a bit, you see the the thing with the way that we operate in, in the world of broadcasting is that we're always encouraged to see both sides of the story, despite even if it is aimed at say the Jewish community. And the only thing that I can possibly see as being the other side of the argument for such bizarre comments would be that he he just sees people for being people rather than defining them as being Jews, someone who hates Jews, someone who wants to try and kill. Do you see what I mean? That a person is a person and potentially he just sees everyone on an even keel. Much like Jeremy Corbyn has said in the past when he's alluded to members of, say, Hamas, the terrorist organization, being his friends. He just wants everyone to be on an even keel. And is that a
4: bit unrealistic, perhaps? I don't know about un- unrealistic, but with Jeremy Corbyn calling Hamas his friends, I don't think there was any spite in it. But Ken Livingston going on record saying that Hitler was a Zionist, I feel is with spite. It's uh, using the Holocaust as a political weapon. And I think a lot of people will take offense at that inside the Jewish community. And indeed, a lot of MPs, non-Jewish MPs have said the same. Ken Livingston went on the Daily Politics after he made these remarks, and he repeated these remarks and was confronted by John Mann, who chairs the Anti Semitism Parliamentary Committee. And he was called uh, historically inaccurate and told to resign from the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party as well.
0: All right, well, regrettably, that is all we've got time for for this week's roundup of the paper. But with any luck, maybe it'll be slightly better news next week, but don't hold your breath yet. Thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, as you've been hearing, this week has been yet another troublesome one for Labour. Nashar, the MP for Bradford West, was suspended from her party following comments she posted before becoming an MP, suggesting that Israelis should be relocated to America in order to resolve the ongoing Middle East crisis. Ms Shah has since apologised for any offence that she may have caused, but naturally there has been a bit of a backlash, to say the least. Naz was invited to take part in this programme, but at the time of recording, she had yet to respond. Although she has written a piece for the Jewish News, and you can read that either in the paper or online. But to discuss this matter, I have been speaking to Jeremy Newmark from the Jewish Labour Movement. I started by asking him for his and his organisation's reaction to Naz's comments.
5: Well, we were appalled. I mean these comments promoting the idea of transporting Jews from Israel to America sort of evokes all sorts of imagery of the last political movement that promoted the idea of mass transportation of jews and that was the uh, nazi party in 1930s germany so this was appalling it was repugnant and it's the kind of language and imagery that uh, modern mainstream politicians have no business getting involved in whether or not it's their language or the language of others that they choose to share via social media Now, see, the thing is that this is a bit of a double edged sword because many people
0: are obviously saying that you can't possibly condone the comments. You can't possibly just sort of say, yes, it was a simple mistake. Anyone could do it because there's got to be something somewhere in someone's mind that makes them realize that posting comments like that at some stage in their life is pretty grim and pretty horrible. But many people are saying it was before she was an MP. Do you think that makes a difference? Is there any excuse? Should this not
5: mar her political career because of it? Well, it's not an excuse in that there can be no ifs and no buts when it comes to racism. I think she did post them. She was involved in political life at the time. And that's why it's fair and appropriate that she has been suspended from the Labour Party. Now, beyond that, there is, of course, a broader context. You know, Naz Shah is somebody, she's a politician who grew up in the sort of rather choppy waters of Bradford local politics, and i think it's fair and true to say that she has moved on since since that era she's moved on very quickly and and very rapidly i doubt that uh, 2 years ago when she posted those comments she envisaged that sort of just over 18 months afterwards she'd be sitting in westminster as a labour mp occupying the role of ppes to the shadow chancellor of the exchequer now you know naz has apologised in incredible depth and i do think that those apologies demonstrate genuine and apparently sincere contrition and i think whilst she does need to uh, to be punished and the suspension is appropriate the best possible result to come out of this would be naz shah re-emerging from this re-educated around issues of anti-semitism and jewish identity understanding what is acceptable and unacceptable language on these issues and becoming a champion of positive community relations and a champion of anti-racist politics so no i hope that this doesn't destroy her career but i do hope that it has a massive impact on her career in a, in a positive way you say apparent then do you, do
0: you suspect then that there is a part of her apologies and i've obviously got to be careful because she's not here to answer this for herself but do you personally believe that her apologies are sincere and are genuine or, or, or do you think that she's more sorry that potentially she got found out for having posted these comments because let's be honest no one can change anything from their past fair enough we can alter our future but what's done is done so do you think there is genuine remorse or do you think
5: this is more she's just making the right noises well we can only take people as we find them and you know we at the Jewish labor movement had the opportunity to meet with naz I wasn't present at that meeting, a number of my colleagues, uh, one of my colleagues attended, and you know, it is our impression that this is a genuine and sincere apology. But of course, it can't just be about words, and the way to determine whether this is genuine and sincere will be to measure and assess her actions over the coming days, weeks, months, and years.
0: The problem that we've got is that we can't escape that there has been an awful lot in recent time, or at least it feels, an awful lot of incidents deemed anti-Semitic from within the Labour Party. Now, whether it be Jeremy Corbyn's lack of saying the word Israel, whether it be his lack of haste to maybe suspend certain members of his party for saying things they shouldn't have, for example, with Naz it did take him a little while to get around to suspending her. It wasn't instant, as some people would have liked. Do you worry about the so-called state of the Labour Party that seems to be frankly quite marred with several anti-semitic incidents.
5: Well first of all let's be clear racism and anti-semitism exists in all political parties certainly in modern European political life You know, here in the UK, within the past couple of years, we've had incidences like the uh, conservative PPS Aidan Burley organising Nazi-themed stag parties. We've had remarks from former Liberal Democrat MPs like David Ward making unacceptable uh, Holocaust analogies and actually denigrating the Holocaust. But yes, you're right. We have seen over the past couple of months an unacceptable level of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. That matters to me because it's my party. It also matters because Labour is a party that claims to have anti-racist policies at its core. Now, it's true that this seems to have come to a head in the past nine or ten months since uh, we've seen a large influx of new members to the party under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And within that influx of new members, there is a small minority from the extreme left. And some of those people do appear to have been emboldened to vocalise and articulate anti-Semitism in a way that perhaps might not have been acceptable a year ago. Equally, some of these remarks and, uh, and comments from individuals predate Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. I think that we need to see an example from the top of the party in dealing with this problem. And I think that when Jeremy Corbyn talks about organizations like Hamas, whose own governing charter contains genocidal or well, at least incitement to genocidal anti-Semitism, it's not difficult to see why a small, hardcore minority of anti-Semites might feel that Labour is providing an acceptable home and an acceptable platform for them to articulate those views. And, and that's what needs to stop. And that is why we need to see a leadership that's clearer, that matches its rhetoric with action.
0: Well, how would you interpret it otherwise if Jeremy Corbyn has in the past said that organisations such as Hamas are his, quote, friends? How else could you interpret that?
5: Well, we interpret it as creating an atmosphere that provides a licence for anti-Semitism. Look, I think it's perfectly possible to be a principled and ardent critic of the actions and policies of of the state of Israel or the government of the state of Israel. Many people within the Jewish labor movement that I chair are virulently opposed to the uh, the actions and policies of the Netanyahu government. But it's possible to articulate that criticism from a principled standpoint that avoids anti-Semitism. And, and this is the red line that I think we consistently see being crossed. I I don't believe for a moment that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite. And, you know, I accept that when Jeremy Corbyn says that when he described Hamas as friends, he didn't intend to endorse their political or anti-Semitic positions in any way. But but that's not good enough, because when it comes to racism and anti-Semitism, if we talk about zero tolerance, we have to demonstrate zero tolerance.
0: Well, speaking of zero tolerance, then how would you foresee the future for Naz Shah, what would you, as a member of the Labour Party, as a supporter of the Labour Party, someone who is within that party has made comments that clearly conflict with you as a member of the Jewish community, what would you want to see happen now?
5: Well, I'll tell you first of all what we don't want to see. We're not asking her or expecting her to mute or temper her criticism of the policies of the Israeli government. That's fine, that's legitimate discourse. It's the kind of discourse that takes place within the state of Israel every day. What we do ask and expect from her is a serious and sustained effort to build upon her apology, to build upon her contrition, to undertake a program of education, an action that will inevitably include demonstrating that she is prepared to stand up to anti-semitism where she sees it, not just classic anti-semitism on the right, but contemporary anti-semitism when it also comes from people on the left, from people within the labor movement, and for that matter, from people within the uh, Palestine Solidarity Movement. So we want to see education. She's already demonstrated uh, some positive first steps by setting up a program of engagement with key Jewish community organizations over the next few weeks, but beyond that, That we want to see action. We'd like to see Naz Shah become a champion of opposing racism, opposing anti Semitism, and promoting positive community values. And maybe that's the silver lining that might yet come out of this cloud.
0: Jeremy Newmark from the Jewish Labour Movement talking to me there about the suspension of MP Naz Shah. I'd like to remind you at this stage that Miss Shah was invited to take part in this programme, but at the time of recording she had yet to get back to us. However, the invitation does extend to any future editions of The Jewish Views, where she'd be most welcome to talk to us. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Kate will be joined by journalist Jenny Fraser and presenter Jeremy Jacobs. They'll be discussing Yom HaShoah and how we should ensure that it's always remembered. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to comedian Mark Mayer about a forthcoming fundraising event at Akiva School. Now, in time for Yom HaShoah, Tikkun are organising a documentary preview screening about the life of a remarkable man by the name of Henry Wormuth. Now, his name might not mean that much to you, but believe me, it will in a few minutes when we find out more about him from his daughter, Ilana Metzger. But first, Kate Fulton, our entertainment and culture reporter, has been speaking to Kayla Starkman from Tikkun to find out more about the event. She started by asking Kayla to tell us a bit about Tikkun.
6: Tikkun, at its core, is a social and educational centre for young Jews, focusing mostly on young Jewish couples' ages around 25 to 40. Right. And the purpose being to teach them as couples or to find out about themselves? The purpose being to reach everyone at their own level, to help them live a more spiritually fulfilled life and a happier life, both by volunteering and by educating themselves. We do it with couples because we find... If they're going to build a life together, it's nice that they learn together and grow together as a couple. And it's short for Tick on a Lamb, sort of healing the world. Exactly. And what is the Yom HaShoah program that you have? So, our Yom HaShoah program called Honoring a Hero is focused on Holocaust survivor Henry Wormuth, who has an incredible story of the day he tried to kill Hitler. And it has been made by his daughter, Alana, into a documentary. So, the program will be. The screening, of, a sneak peek of the screening, not the full screening of the documentary, plus a talk by Henry with questions and answers about the day, about his time in the camps. Sort of a time to remember the Holocaust, which is what Yom Show is, and also to connect more with one of its survivors. Sounds an incredible programme. Why do we need a Yom Showa programme? I think, especially as the Holocaust gets further and further away in everyone's memory, it's very important to have a personal connection. It's so much stronger. It makes it so much more real when you hear someone speak about what has happened and what they have personally gone through. Obviously, you can read about it, but I think when it's in front of you and when you're seeing the heroism of someone who had to go through it, the struggle of someone who had to go through it, it becomes so much more important. and. Holocaust deniers, and especially just even in the minds of the children today who don't, who might not have grown up with grandparents anymore who have gone through it. It's just, it's really nice to have that personal connection. Nice and also meaningful. And is it open to anybody? Yes, the program is open to anyone who wants to come. It's on May 4th at 7.30 in the centre on Finchley Road. Vincity Road and if somebody do you have to buy tickets before? Yes so the tickets are five pounds you don't have to you can buy them before we suggest buying them before to ensure a place but they will also be available on the door. And where do you get details? You can find details either you can call the office at 0208 or you can go online at www.tikun.co.uk And all of the details will be there.
0: Kayla Starkman from Tikkun telling us about their forthcoming event honoring Henry Wormuth. And for tickets, that telephone number again is 020-8912-1213. That's 8912-1213. Or you can go to tikkun.co.uk. Well, I think it's about time we heard about the man of the hour. Ilana Metzger is the daughter of Henry Wormuth and Kate has been speaking to her as well to find out about her father's incredible story. She started by asking Ilana to give us some insight into his background.
7: My father was born in Frankfurt on Main in 1923. He was quite poor by the standards of the day. He didn't finish his education because he and his family ended up being deported to Poland, he went through nine concentration and forced labor camps, eventually being liberated from Mauthausen on the 5th of May 1945. And how did he end up here? After liberation, he had a thought of going to what was then Palestine, now Israel. He lost his faith in God. And he couldn't bear the thought of going to see his uncle and standing next to him whilst he was dovening and praying to God when at the time my father had lost all faith in God. He's since come around, changed his mind, but at that time, having lost all of his family and all of his friends... He didn't, he didn't want to stand by an uncle who was a de- devout believer in God when he had lost his faith. So in the end, he went to Rome where he did all the things that he'd missed out on in his younger years. And eventually, he returned to Germany to look for family and Nazis. He didn't find any family and he didn't find any Nazis. Amazingly, everyone he spoke to said, I wasn't a Nazi, it wasn't me. He also put his hand to a little bit of international smuggling. He smuggled cigarettes over the Swiss-Italian border and was particularly bad at it, got caught by the police who confiscated the cigarettes and I think smoked them all before they'd left, uh, left him. But um, yeah, he wasn't any good at that. And he ended up in England because he had one member of his family left and she had come to England before the war and got married and lived in Stamford Hill. So that's why he came to England to join her. And was any of his family saved Were they apart all- from her? She, and she left before the war. No, nobody. So there was a mother and father. There was his mother, his father, and his sister Hannah, who was six years younger than him. Gosh, and I want
8: to tell uh, people who who don't know all the not, uh, all the details, but as much as you want to
7: about the special time. There was a special event. Well, I suppose my father's claim to fame. Could be that he is probably the last man alive who tried to assassinate Hitler at the time. They how did have... he do that? Try to do that. Uh, how oh, did, did he do that? Had. Well, can I say at the time they probably would have shot him straight there on the spot. Now he, well, a few years ago when the German government found out about it, they presented him with a hero's medal. And they made a big fuss of him, and so when we go, we we go around and talk at schools. And we bring the medal with us. And that is obviously a great attraction. Um, How did he try to kill Hitler? He tried to derail his train. He was, my father was in an ammunition camp called, I think it's called Kwai, but spelt K-L-A-J in Poland, not too far from Bochnia. It was, not a concentration camp and at the time he could come and go as he pleased. Had he known what was to come with regards to the concentration camps and the torture and the starvation, they would have left and run off and never come back. But they thought if this is as bad as it gets in the war, we can stay here because they were doing very menial jobs that weren't back-breaking like painting and making graphs in offices and things like that. So my father stole away in the middle of the night, having heard on the grapevine that Hitler was passing through the next day on a train and he put as many things onto the railway track to derail the train. And as my father said, he is not a professional train derailer, but he was sure that what he put on the tracks was sufficient to derail a large locomotive. The next day he went out very early and and got himself as close as he could which wasn't actually very close because the place was surrounded by soldiers but he waited to hear the crash or the derailing and it never happened so he just assumes that someone noticed. went ahead and saw what, what, what was happening and obviously you know, took everything off the track so unfortunately he didn't change the course of history but he sometimes says if he did kill Hitler he he thinks that the the machinery was already in motion to kill the Jews, and perhaps the world would have pointed their finger at him and said, because of him killing Hitler, so many Jews died. We'll never know. How old were you when you first started hearing your father's stories and his? I don't actually remember. I, Has I he always think talked to you. He always talked, but not in any great detail, and certainly nothing that would give me sleepless nights. He was told by a cousin who lived in Israel who was quite a well-known psychologist that it would be a good idea to write it down. It would be good for him, good for the family, and it very important for the rest of the world to know his story. Because When, when was he ta- that? When was that? Gosh, I don't remember. I think in the 1980s. But it did take him 10 years to write the book because there'd be certain points, certainly when his mother and sister got taken away, and he never saw them again. And it was many years before he found out what actually happened to them. When he wrote that part of the book, he had so many nightmares. He actually stopped writing for quite a while. And obviously other sections in the book, which were very painful, he, he would stop for, for long periods. And at the time when I lived at home, my father had a thing about us not closing the doors at night. And that would mean that if you had a nightmare, we'd all know about it. <laughs> oh, and that happened quite regularly. And the, you made a documentary. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I'm in the process of making a documentary now. My father is 93 years old. He is incredible, actually. Um, the only thing is that he, well, he had a stroke 12 years ago, so he's he's in a wheelchair, but he's quite annoyingly deaf. <laughs> but apart from that, he's... Absolutely, on the ball, remembers things perfectly and better than me. And I truly believe that we need to keep telling this story. I I do say never again. And this is my little way of trying to ensure way. How did you get a team together? How did you get into production? Well, actually, three different companies approached me. And the, the company I chose were as passionate about keeping the story alive as I was. And I knew the people that I chose would work as hard as me to get the right things out there in the right way. And that's probably why it's taking longer, because we are trying to perfect it.
0: Incredible story there from Ilana Metzger, the daughter of Henry Wormuth who, at the age of 93, is thought to be the last man alive who attempted to assassinate Adolf Hitler. A reminder that that documentary preview will be screened at Tikkun on Wednesday the 4th of May. And for more information, don't forget it's tikkun.co.uk. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. Now, Akiva School are going to be raising a few smiles on Sunday, the 8th of May. Well, at least that's the hope they are, because they're about to put on another of their Just for Laughs events. It brings an array of comedic talents together, all in the name of charity, and in particular for Akiva PTA and the Motor Neuron Disease Association. Diana Toman has been finding out more about this for us by speaking to the compere, comedian Mark Mayer. She started by asking Mark to tell us what we can expect from the event.
2: Hilarious, non-stop, unadulterated fun. This is now our, I believe, our third year of doing this and I, a long history of stand-up comedy, being involved in it, and I sort of decided or helped to decide to put this event on and it's been very well received in the past couple of years and it's just a mixture of different styles of comedy so on this occasion we've got a, a gentleman called nish kuma who is iranian born and he's got a very interesting brand of comedy and then we have another gentleman called hal cruttenden who's been on tv a yes. lot and is quite a sort of I've high profile yes. so again very different flavor and me who does i kind of just do observational and for on this event probably we'll do quite a lot of observational jewish comedy that's my thing
9: that's your thing. Right, and that's how you got involved. Tell me when I googled it the website just for laughs it came up with a whole lot of events in Canada. Is there any connection between the two?
2: Well, we were thinking if we don't get much of an audience we'll actually all just get a mega bus to Canada and put the event on there because right. I'm not sure the northern line stretches quite that far. Right. Um but they oh, have yeah, the alternative same name. answer is that and that name has been <laughs> borrowed. Uh, lifted, stolen. There is an event called Just for Laughs, yes. But I'm sure the the people of Montreal won't be too upset if we use that name. But yes, you're right. If you'd Google Just for Laughs, brackets, Akiva School, then there we go. I hope hope our audience isn't heading off to Canada.
9: (laughs) Yes, indeed. That would make for a fairly empty auditorium. When you put on these events, because this is the third, I think Mm. you said... How do you organise them from the beginning? I mean, who do you rope in to do the organising? Because I imagine it's not all down to you.
2: No, no, there's various... Uh, obviously, we need to get an audience, so I leave that to the, uh, the very strong, solid Akiva team that managed to uh, cajole people into getting tickets. Then we've got our, the whole lighting and sounding, sound operation. Lights and sound are very important, obviously, so, um, again, Akiva get involved with that. And then I sort of put the word out with various comedians that I know that I've worked with that I think would be appropriate for that kind of event to come along because not every comedian would be right for that particular show.
9: Yes, I can imagine that. So, and there are the mastermind, as it were... Every event. I mean, is this their? This is their thing,
2: is it? Well, it's, I think it's just one of many events that they do, but for for the school. For the school. Yes, i think So there'll be right. quiz nights and all those, all manner of uh, normal things. But this is slightly, I suppose, left of field in a way that we're doing comedy. It's. it's it'll be. How fun. long
9: have you been a comedian for? One hundred and
2: seventeen years. <laughs> but, so uh, you're no, still. You're still rehearsing, are you? Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've been doing comedy about twenty six years. I say about to give the illusion that I'm quite young and and fresh. Right. I, I've grown a beard and moustache as a sort of an effort to look youthful, which I I like as a look. My right. my mother in law said the beard and moustache doesn't suit you. Get rid of it. And if I if I say that to her, it really doesn't work out too well.
9: I see. Fine. Yes, a crowbar
2: in a joke there. <laughs> I hope you noticed that
9: i did thank yeah, you I did indeed right so we've got this event coming on next sunday the 8th
2: of may yes sounds uh, fun and if people have enjoyed it i've uh, got a show that i'm doing myself a one-off one-man show in the west end of london oh great but i'm sure if we had more time we'd love to discuss but people can find out about it by coming to this event
9: well you could give me a quick a quick hit. The up Duchess on Theatre
2: that. on the 13th of June. Wow. My one man show.
9: Lovely theatre. I'm sure it'd be a great show. Now, for tickets, people want to get for this event, they would get in touch with Samantha, would they? That's correct. And it's £15 per ticket, which sounds good value.
2: That's that, absolutely good for,
9: value. For an
0: event in Canada, I think that <laughs> certainly is value for money. Travel not included. No, exactly. <laughs> Mark Mayer speaking to community reporter Diana Toman there. And for tickets, as Mark has just said, you need to get in contact with Samantha, who is one of the event organisers. And you'll need to email her through us. So you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. And then we'll be sure to pass on your request. Just for Laughs is on Sunday the 8th of May between 7.30pm and 10pm at the Akiva School and indeed it is not in Canada and tickets are priced at £15.
10: You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Rosslyn, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Kate Fulton and me today are journalist Jenny Fraser and the voice Jeremy Jacobs. And the subject for this edition is based on what we heard Kate talking about earlier, Yom Hashoah. As you may know, the day falls on May the 5th, with various events taking place to mark the anniversary. The question is, how do we ensure the day is never forgotten? And what can we do to preserve the knowledge from one of the darkest eras in history? Let's start with you, Jenny.
11: Well, I think that what's happening at the moment with a lot of the survivors' organisations, they're doing their very best to pass things on to the next generation. And I, I think certainly with survivors' families, many of the next generation have a very keen sense of where their parents or grandparents have come from. And they feel it a duty and a responsibility that they've taken upon themselves to maintain that story and and repeat it and talk about what happened to their families in order to help with education among themselves and among their peers. But further to that, I think that the work being done by organisations like the Holocaust Educational Trust, which has consciously sought out young non-Jews, taken them to places like Auschwitz and other camps, and then transformed them into ambassadors to talk about the Holocaust. That, to me, is a remarkable piece of educational programming, which is the kind of thing which will ensure, I hope, that the Holocaust just doesn't become history on a page, but really becomes something living.
10: I'm afraid that I think it already has become something on a page in many places.
12: Yes, I think as, 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 as the years go by, it's like anything else in history, things are just forgotten. So it's, I think it's incumbent upon all of us, really, to ensure that, and it's much easier nowadays with social media, isn't it, to, to ensure that these things are, are kept in people's, in the forefront of people's minds. But
10: it's not kept in the front of,
12: in the well, front because of people's it, it, minds, is it? Is it. it. Well, no, no, OK, but there is so much information in, in general life, th- thrust at people... Though we spend most of our lives deleting stuff, don't we? Jews or non-Jews. So we have to do something. K-4 we have Jews. to do something.
8: I often think you've got Yom HaShoah, Yom HaAzma'ot, Yom HaZikaron. If you're not Jewish and you're not in the thrust of it, I think, you know what, I'd go for a rebrand, a I, I rename anyway. I think it's very difficult for people who are not really into it to know the difference between all three of them and to properly appreciate, and they all do very different things, different-ish. I think we do need to look for some ways that are new to, to, to keep people educated and also to keep them interested.
10: Interested is an interesting word. It surely is something that from a Jewish point of view will always be interesting and has to be.
8: It should be to us. It is to us. But should it, is it as interesting or is it as relevant to other people, other faiths? That's the point. We we try and be inclusive and we try and have it as a day of, of Holocaust remembrance for and then we start sweeping in every type of atrocity that there has, ever has been. And you can feel things being brought in. I often think, actually, it's our day. Well, they they're all muscling into our day. But everybody's got to. It was our, we started it. We had that day, didn't we?
11: I think you're confusing several different commemoration events. There's Holocaust Memorial Day, which is a national day, introduced by the government, which takes place in January. There's Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaShoah, which take place either side of Israel's Independence Day. I would take Independence Day out of this equation. I'm talking about
8: for other people who don't know. You hear, all, We're talking about how to keep this day relevant, and I'm saying make it very, very clear that it is a separate day. We're talking about Holocaust Memorial. We, we need to keep it very separate, because I think people do get all these days confused.
11: Well, I'm not sure I would agree with you. And I also think that given the various governments' commitment to Holocaust education, I think you would be amazed at the level of knowledge and information and take up that there is in schools to do with the Holocaust. Look, what we have now is very precious and we have to hold on to it, that those survivors who still can are able to go around and talk to schools because there really is no substitute for listening to somebody's personal experience. And when I speak to the survivors and they tell me the kind of questions that the teenagers ask them, they range from the horrified to the absolute banal in terms of questions. But I think that people are really fascinated and they want to know. And if we can't have the personal accounts, then the next best thing is the accounts of the second generation and also that those survivors who can give personal testimony and put it on film so that people
8: can see that. Isn't that what they've done at the Imperial War Museum?
12: Yes. I think so, yes, yes. But how many,
10: how many children, let's say, go to the War Museum to see these films? Do you mean Jewish
12: children or do you mean, I mean, you mean everybody? every child? I
10: mean, Jewish children on the whole are told about the Holocaust. But non Jewish children are not told anything about it. And many of them don't even know it existed. It happened. Yes,
11: they are actually told about the Holocaust. Yes. They are taught about it in schools and the survivors go to endless numbers of non-Jewish schools all over the country and the children come down... Children, I mean, they don't teach them the horrors of the Holocaust until they're a certain age, but they come down on school trips and teenagers all over the country go to the camps on educational tours. There is a huge programme of education for teenagers in this country. And they're much more knowledgeable than we might even give them credit for.
10: But there are very few survivors left now to go and tell the story to the children, aren't there? Mm -hmm. And then, although you say that their descendants will tell the story, many of their descendants don't tell the story because of the experiences they've had with their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who have kept it to themselves or because they don't want to think about it. Quite rightly, mm. in some ways.
8: Yes, that's true. My my father-in-law is a survivor, but didn't talk about it. Doesn't talk about it very much. So, not everybody. It's fantastic, like you said, if there are people who are ambassadors and feel empowered and enabled, and have the have it within them to to speak. But sometimes experiences affect different people in different ways, and then unable to. I'm also concerned about how many people want um, not just the Holocaust, but other genocides to be brought into the day. And I'm not sure whether that conflates genocides as if, as if there's, there's one amorphous mass and it's difficult to separate them. I don't know what others feel about having other genocides remembered, recalled.
12: Well, which, well, okay. Which well, whether, whether we, you've
8: got oh, Rwanda, whether you've got anywhere really,
12: Turkey, Cambodia. They should all be put
10: together. They're all an example of the same terrible thing. And the Holocaust is perhaps the biggest of them all. And yet we're still, there's Holocausts are still going on all the time. And this is what is to be taught to people, surely.
12: Clive, I'm not quite sure. I disagree with you that Holocaust are going on. I don't know anywhere else in the world where people are being murdered, mass murdered, in a, in mechanically uh, and automatically, if you like. It's not happening. It happened in in what was Yugoslavia. I wouldn't I wouldn't call that anything like. But it wasn't it wasn't mechanised. Not the Nazis organised it. I'm not saying it was what happened in in and elsewhere was good, but you can't compare. And there's there's always been atrocities in this one. There's been others since. Look, what's happening in the Middle East in Syria at the moment?
10: Well, Syria is a very good example. I mean, it's getting, it's it's not as many people have been killed as were killed in the Holocaust but there are many, many thousands of people who are dying and who are being persecuted. Sure.
12: And it depends where you are. In Africa, in, in, 20 years ago, they, they think 3 million people were killed in the war, in what was Congo. I mean, it's just not reported. And uh, atrocities in Sudan, but you know, who's going to remember those people?
11: I'm slightly confused as to what people are saying should be remembered at what point? Holocaust Memorial Day, the national day introduced by the government and which is commemorated by governments around the world on January the 27th to mark the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz in 1945. In many, many countries, ours included, that's a day when other genocides are remembered. I think that's a good thing. And I think if we want to talk about ourselves as a light unto the nations, then surely we have a duty and a responsibility to demonstrate to the world that our terrible experiences as a people has something to say to victims of other horrific genocides. But that's Holocaust Memorial Day. What is done in Israel on Yom HaShoah is very specific to the Holocaust, the destruction of European Jewry and the attempted destruction of world Jewry had Hitler had his way. And I think that those two things are very, very different kinds of commemorations and I'm slightly concerned that they're being confused here.
10: So what you're really saying is that Yom HaShoah is an inward look for all of us, all of us Jews, to look into the terrible thing that happened 70, 80 years ago.
8: Yes, yes, I do think so. I can't help but feel that there's a very fine line, I hear what you say, there's a very still line dividing, a fine line dividing, Holocaust Memorial Day from Yom HaShoah, because people inevitably on Yom HaShoah still recall other Holocaust... You've effectively got two days recalling horrific events and i'm just wondering whether if we could put those together or somehow have them at the same time or something i think there are too many separate days about the holocaust important though i think it is a crucially important i think it is to remember to educate to teach to remind people it's not can't happen again i suppose you're suggesting that people are suffering
11: from holocaust fatigue to some I think
8: two full days to remember, it's not for me, it it, it never goes away, however, I do wonder whether people looking in who aren't part of it, who aren't Jewish, or maybe don't feel the same extent towards it as we do, may feel that two days is a day too many, when there are other things that maybe should have their own separate.
12: Kate, how many non-Jewish people in this country know about Yom HaShoah on May the 5th? I'm sorry, I I think it must be a tiny number. I don't see. I mean, I agree. A tiny number. People are interested. People just are just interested. You know, in it, if it's there for Israel, then it's good, and it's, it's it's a, it's a wonderful thing. What about thing. The,
8: the not so observant of, amongst ourselves?
12: Well, then you have got Holocaust Memorial Day. But why should we have both? Well, why not? If you're not that observant, you're not going to observe it, are you? But I mean, I, I take your point. But Yom HaShoah is Israel centric. Holocaust Memorial Day in January is different. Uh, I take your point, but I, again, I understand okay. things. Is, I don't think there's an argument there, really. Well, how think. should
8: we get more people That's aware. the issue.
12: That's the issue. Well, you can raise Rem- it, yeah.
10: By arranging for all sorts of people on Yom Hashoah, perhaps Jewish people, to go to Auschwitz to make it almost essential that they must go there and see what it was like, what happened. Mm.
8: What about... Well, we do have March of the Living, which is another way of of commemorating, and I wonder if that's another one, another third one.
10: You see, I think actually think that there are a number of, I say, a number of quite a few
12: Jewish children who are not aware of it. Parents didn't talk about it. I suppose I'm like that, that, that of that sort of generation. My parents are very Anglophile. Many people in this country who are Jewish, you know, if you're not if you're not there, if you're not in Europe, then you're not going to be quite this psychologically affected in the quite the same way. I mean, but one still feels it because it's you know it's it, it's part of, my, part of one's Jewish upbringing, but. But is you it? Know, some some just trying
10: to say. Is it part of one's Jewish upbringing these well, one, days?
12: Well, for the for the for the young people in their twenties and thirties, possibly possibly less so than people of slightly more senior years.
11: Well, given that, I would think it's something like sixty percent of Jewish children today go to Jewish schools, which was not the case in my day, not least because there weren't as many Jewish schools then. But the sheer numbers of Jewish kids who go to Jewish schools today means that they are getting education about the Holocaust.
10: No question. Is the figure as big as
11: 60%? Yes, easily.
12: Yes, I can believe that. Easily. I can believe that, yeah.
10: So what about the other 40% then?
11: Well, then some are lucky enough to go to expensive fee-paying schools and they still get taught about what went on during the Nazi era because it's part of the national curriculum. And the rest of them play catch-up.
12: I didn't. I didn't go to a fee-paying school, and I still was told about the, the, the in my in my
10: yes, but in believe, my
12: in you, my non-Jewish school in a non-Jewish part of the world. an earlier, yeah, that was some time generation. ago. That was um, before. Well, there we are. It's
10: been an interesting discussion. Thank you all very much indeed. My thanks to our guests, journalist Jenny Fraser, and the voice Jeremy Jacobs. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time it comes from Rabbi James Barden from
13: Sharei Tzedek, North London,
10: Reform Synagogue.
13: I have just returned from spending a few days in Warsaw, a city I know well. It is the city where the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising took place 73 years ago in April 1943 a date associated with the outbreak of the uprising, was chosen not many years later in 1951 by the very new State of Israel as an official occasion which has come to be known as Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and it will be marked in Israel and throughout the Jewish world during the week ahead. Although there are still some survivors amongst us today in 2016, The vast majority of the Jews confined in the ghetto perished. Over 250,000 deported to the death camp at Treblinka. Tens of thousands murdered after the suppression of the uprising, and perhaps 100,000 died of starvation and exposure in the ghetto itself. Yet those statistics of death remind us of the fact that Warsaw had been a massive center of Jewish life, for decades, centuries, before the Germans invaded in 1939. In the 1930s, approximately 400,000 Jews lived in Warsaw, over a third of the city's population. It was the second biggest Jewish city in the world, after New York. A few days ago, I stood high up in the viewing gallery of a bizarre and mammoth building, the Palace of Culture and Science built on the orders of Stalin as a so-called gift to the people of Warsaw in the early 1950s, the same time, in fact, as newly founded Israel was busy legislating to create Yom HaShoah. Today's Poles have mixed feelings about this reminder of the decades of Soviet oppression, but they have left the palace standing. There, in the capital of Poland, my mind turned to the example of Shmuel Ziegelboim, the Jewish socialist member of the Polish government in exile who took his life here in London in May 1943 when he heard of the crushing of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Stalin's bizarre palace in Warsaw is a product of one manifestation of socialist dreaming, a widely hated Soviet form. At the same time, other versions of socialist dreaming, reflecting passionate and democratic dedication to the dignity of labor and the rights of working people, inspired Ziegelbohm and his party, the Bund, and innumerable other Jews of his day. And it occurs to me that the high ideals of those Jews, such as Siegelboim, are celebrated via another date, which falls this week, the 1st of May, still marked around the globe as May Day, the International Workers' Day. Let it not be forgotten that the rights, the freedoms, and the protections of working people today throughout the world were won through the hard efforts and campaigns of people, Jewish people, like Shmuel Siegelboim.
0: Thank you to Rabbi James Barden from Sharite Sedek North London Reform Synagogue. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you to our guests, Jeremy Newmark, Kayla Starkman, Ilana Metzger, Mark Mayer, Jenny Fraser and Jeremy Jacobs, who are on the schmooze, and of course, you at home for listening. Thanks also to the team, including our producers Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. And don't forget, you can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.